We are now joined by uh, one of the most esteemed authors in the sports book business. She is a heavy hitter herself, and her new book is New York Times bestseller, uh, The Big Fella by Jane Levy. Jane, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Stan. How are you this Good. morning? Good. You're on with myself and my co-host on Saturdays here on the Bat Around, Craig Heist. Hey, Jane. How are you? I'm great, Greg. How are you? Good, good. Hey, this is our week to have really gotten to know one another. We had you on the Skype uh, the other night, which will air tomorrow morning. And part of the reason we wanted to zero in on you is you're doing a book signing here in Baltimore next Saturday at the Babe Ruth Museum Birthplace at 3 to 5. You're going to give a little talk and then sign some books. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Uh, Well, you know... (laughs) It's, it's, it should have been the first event, I think, probably, because it's where the whole book got its start back in 19, I think it was 1995, when um, I took my son there. My son was then seven years old, and he was quite patient, given, you know, that he was seven, standing right. and looking at uh, the bedroom in which Babe Ruth was born, and while I took notes and, and then the executive director, um, you know, filled in some of the details. It, it was. Uh, I've actually been thinking about writing about Babe Ruth since then. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the uh, very long uh, reportorial investigation, Greg Schwallenberg, who was then a curator, took my son into what passed for a what passed for then the archives it was basically a, a closet uh, with steel shelving, you know. And he pulls a bat out of a bunch of them, and then he says to my son, here, try this. And Nick was a fairly little guy, and he hands him this gigantic bat, and Nick tries to get it over his shoulder, and he's, you know, trying to steady himself. And he finally gets it in place and assumes his batting stance, and Greg says, that's one of the bats Babe Ruth used in 1927. Mm. And Nick's... (laughs) You know, he struggled to maintain his equilibrium right. because even for somebody who was seven years old, and granted the son of somebody who cares about this stuff a lot, uh, but for somebody who was seven years old, the name Babe Ruth meant so much. And that told me it was worth pursuing, um, that, you know, this is the one name in American sports that will never get old and people will never get over. Jane, that story is great because, you know, if if you're a kid and you're watching baseball or you're a fan of it or you're even playing it as a kid, I don't think there's too many people that don't know at least the name Babe Ruth yeah. or – like the kind of, uh, you know, mystique, what he brought, and, and, you know, whether it was being called the Sultan of Swat, whether it was, you know, the, just this big, round kind of guy who looked like the, he was having a lot of fun every time you see videos of him. Well, you know, he wasn't always that round when he first came up <laughs> yeah. uh, to the major leagues in 1914 with the Boston Red Sox as a, as a pitcher. He was quite live. He was probably you know, he was six one and a half and one eighty five, one ninety five. And the caricature of him with the uh, overblown chest on these uh pipe stem legs was a something that came much later in his career and it's been accentuated by all those drawings. I actually think you know there are pictures of him lying on a like a rubbing table where he's getting a, a, a rub down from a trainer and it, it, his chest is like a like an accordion with the bellows shut. It's that <laughs> huge. And um, 
I think his chest actually disguised and and it caused people to misinterpret how big his legs really were. Mm-hmm. He hit with his legs, just like every modern player tells you. The power comes from the legs. And he was a very modern guy in almost every way, but most especially in the way that he swung a bat. And he understood completely the principles of leverage and torque that were necessary to generate power in a in a modern baseball power swing. Do you think is uh, and I know this I'm not sure if this is a big part of the book or not, but Babe Ruth being a pitcher and a and a pitcher of some great renown, do you think that played into his understanding of hitting a little bit as well? Yeah, I think it had to. And and after all, you know, the kinetic chain that um Sandy Koufax described for me so well in um, my book about him, uh, that is what causes you to be able to generate power. And a pitcher, of course, has the advantage because he's working off a, a mound and a, a batter's working from you know flat ground. But the, the, it's the same; it, the same principles apply. And so he was. I, I think I said in the book somewhere that he's the one guy in in the history of baseball. I mean. Maybe Lefty O'Doul, a couple of maybe Otani will prove it to to be worthy of uh, being in that group, who understood and mastered the laws of physics from opposite ends of sixty feet six inches. We're talking with Jane Levy. She's got a New York Times bestseller. Uh, it's number one. It's a monster book right now. The big fella. Uh, Babe Ruth, a, a Babe Ruth story, and I forget the the subhead is what Jane. It's the, the big fella Babe Ruth and the world he created. All right, the world he created. I read one of the reviews of your book, and I can't remember right now who it was from. But in preparing to interview you the other night, and we never got to this topic. Does your book get into it with some substance the fact that he was the first of what we now take for granted as modern marketable athletes oh absolutely that's exactly what the the subhead um is is conveying ruth had the great fortune to come along at exactly the right moment in history when developments in technology i.e radio uh telexes even prototypes of fax machines, um, was amplifying uh, the kind of fame that people could achieve. He also came to New York just when the first tabloid paper, the New York Daily News, had been, had been in, in existence for seven months when he arrived in January 1920. And he also had the first sports agent, a guy named Christy Walsh, who was a California guy, uh, cheap as the day was long, which was a good thing for Babe, um, because he was the opposite. And he was a failed cartoonist, and he was a failed ad man, and he was out of work when in February 1921 he got the great idea that if he could lasso Babe Ruth to write for what he called the Christie Walsh Syndicate, mm-hmm. um, and he could market uh, newspaper articles with Babe Ruth's byline, which of course were ghostwritten by Christy Walsh and then a succession of the most prominent sports writers in America, um, that that he could make a living. 
So he actually um, he, he actually crawled up a fire escape at the hotel Babe Ruth was staying at, um, had found out what floor it was, peeked in the window, saw Babe Ruth in bed with a blonde, climbed through the window, slapped him on the butt and said, I want to represent you. And that, that was the beginning of a 14-year professional relationship in which evolved from the, that syndicate deal uh-huh. into Christy Walsh managing all of his affairs, getting him um, all sorts of endorsements, which was, again, it wasn't unheard of, but it was new in the way that, that Walsh did it so systematically. And he also toured him around the country on, uh, off-season in barnstorming tours and in vaudeville tours and uh absolutely as as Roger Angel who is you know my my go-to guy on everything baseball said he was the model of modern celebrity we're talking with Jane Levy the author of the big fellow uh, uh the story of Babe Ruth and the world that he created Jane will be at the Babe Ruth Museum and Birthplace next Saturday the 15th from 3 to 5 she'll sign your books there uh, she's doing a great deal of promotion on this book, and it's all paying off. Uh, Craig Heist has a question for you. <laughs> that Jane. last story you told, Jane, I was just thinking uh, as far as just putting the whole book together, I was going to ask you, is there anything that you ran across that surprised you, and maybe that was it? <laughs> <laughs> that story comes from uh, Christy Walsh's nephew, Richard, uh, who was one of the first guys I interviewed. I think he was 86 Um, when I interviewed him, and he's still going strong. Um, Yes, there was a lot that surprised me. Um, At the very beginning of the process, I talked for a long time to my friend Dan Okrent, who was a great baseball writer, historian, and um, and then later the ombudsman for the New York Times. He had a great journalistic career in every way, and he said to me one of the things that became a, a thread throughout the book. He said, you know, he... When you listen to his voice, he doesn't sound like the gutter snipe of of, the bad kid who hung around the the waterfront in Baltimore. And when you look at his handwriting, he doesn't look like the illiterate boob Mm -hmm. that he is always described as being. And Dan said, you know, there's he, he he comported himself with dignity that he never gets credit for. And I followed Dan's lead in that, and I'm absolutely convinced that over the course of his life and career, Babe Ruth did evolve from um, the guy who came to the Boston Red Sox without a toothbrush um, to somebody who the reporter who followed him for the Daily News in New York said you could take him to any party anywhere, and he would know how to behave. He knew what fork went with what part of what meal. He could hold his little pinky out uh, while holding a a teacup or a little cup of soup. Um, He really did change. And one of the things that was most poignant for me was an article I found at the Hall of Fame by a guy named Jan Robbins, uh, who was a young 14-year-old high school reporter from Brooklyn who won a contest and got to go interview Babe Ruth in 1934 at the end of his Yankee career. And everybody was talking at that point about how Ruth clearly wanted to manage the Yankees, 
and wasn't being given the opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. So this young man, whose name was Jan, um, you know, wants to sound grown up. So after some pleasantries and getting over the shock of seeing Babe Ruth in pink striped underwear, um, <laughs> Jan asks him what he figures is the grown-up question about how he feels about not getting a chance to manage. And Babe Ruth goes nuts on the kid. And he says, you newspaper guys are all alike to this 14-year-old. You know, <laughs> you never give a guy a chance. <laughs> Wasn't I good to you? Didn't I give you a lot to write about? Can't And this is the pivotal part of the quote. Can't you see that I've changed? Sure, I ran around a lot, but I'm different now. Can't you give a guy a chance? And what that story captures and that too was sort of a a, a um became a go-to part of the story for me babe ruth created with the help of christy walsh happily participated in the creation of this persona of the big fella but then he got trapped inside of it and um and and no one would give him credit for being a person who had changed and who was not, you know, the, the the gutter snipe that he had been always portrayed to be. The the title, the big fella. Were there other were there other titles you were considering, and how did it come out that it was the big fella? That was I found that in a quote from Casey Stengel, um, who actually, of course, being Casey Stengel, called him the big feller. Right. But then I started looking around and seeing. That, that that's what a lot of his contemporaries called him. All the other names, and I've listed 58 of them on one page, and I think I've left some out. As a matter of fact, I found one from uh, uh, Grantland Rice the other day. Uh, he called him the Baltimore Blizzard, among other things. <laughs> um, but I, from the moment I heard that, I said, that's what he is. That That's it. We're talking- so, uh, the subtitle changed, yeah. but the... But the the title was always the same. You've written two other major books on baseball figures, Sandy Koufax in the early 2000s, like one or two, and then the Mickey Mantle story, which was titled The The Last Boy Hero? The Last Boy, uh, Mickey Mantle, and the End of America's Childhood. All right. What have you found? Is it surprised you? Has this book so trumped those two books, no pun intended there, uh, in in total interest. Um, no, I think I, I I no, I think that the three books actually fit together as a as a triad in a way that I could never have planned. It's only something I could see from this vantage point. Sandy Koufax is a guy who is so smart, so well read, um, has so much of a sense of himself as a human being who is not just Sandy Koufax in quotes, the, you know, the great left-handed pitcher, that he understood that modern celebrity, which began with Babe Ruth, um, can eat your soul. And he doesn't live for or need the mentions and the items and the clickbait, you know, that, mm-hmm. that other people need to feel complete. Mickey Mantle was a guy who came to New York at age 19 from Commerce, Oklahoma, and I think he was destroyed by celebrity. 
and I might add by the comparisons and the expectations that he would be the second Babe Ruth. Uh, he was a guy who, whose family had alcoholism running through it, um, and uh, here he is in New York, and everybody wants to buy the Mick a drink and be able to say they, they bought him a drink, and then, you know, yep. <laughs> they, they didn't know they were contributing to the illness yep. that would ultimately kill him. Um, and Babe Ruth is the guy who created uh, this, yeah. this new way of being famous for athletes. So they do fit together in a, in a, you know, in a, in a way, as, as I said, I could never have planned. One of the topics uh, surrounding, and I know from talking to you the other night, how much research you put into Babe as a as a young kid. But I did want to ask you, what did you find in doing this book of the real nature of the Garrig Ruth relationship? Was it complex? Yes, it certainly became complex because, after all, you know, even in 1927, um, when when Garrig wins the MVP. Um, award because you're not allowed to get it twice under the major league rules of the time. Um, he's still 24 years old, and he's still naive and inexperienced in all the ways one can be inexperienced and dominated by his very overbearing mother, Mom Gehrig. Um, but they kind of are opposite sides of the same coin. I mean, Gehrig's the overmothered boy, and and Ruth is the motherless boy. His mother had died when uh, in 1912 and uh, had not been part of the family since his parents divorced in 1906, which was the major reportorial finding that explained uh, the childhood of Babe Ruth and why and how he became who he became. So in 27... Gehrig's like a little lap dog. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a strange way to describe him, as chiseled, large, and muscular as he was. But, you know, he's following Babe around, and um, there's this wonderful piece of film that I found. They go hunting on a hunting trip at the end of the barnstorming tour that I describe uh, at length in the book. And um, there's a there's film of Gehrig um, picking bugs and 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 stuff out of of Ruth's hair the next morning after sleeping in a duck blind and it's very tender and very um uh it it captures what the relationship was like at that time it it soured much later not over allegedly over the treatment of um uh his first his daughter Dorothy from his first marriage by his second wife Claire but it really went to to well, you know, it went it went it went bad for for good in 1934 when uh, Gehrig's wife Eleanor and he married late, uh, his mother having chased off um, every other woman up till then. Uh, Eleanor Gehrig and Claire Ruth uh, are on the they're on a boat going to Japan uh, for the postseason tour of Japan that uh, organized by uh, Lefty O'Doul and Connie Mack, and they, the two women agree that the feud is stupid and they should get over it, and uh, Claire invites Eleanor back to the Ruth State Room for um, uh, an afternoon of champagne and caviar, uh, and so she disappears for the afternoon, and Lou, meanwhile, is searching the horizon thinking she's gone overboard, and when he finds out where she's been and who she's been with, 
he's so angry he won't talk to her. He doesn't talk to her for a week. And Babe goes to Lou's uh, stateroom and, you know, tries to give him a big hug and say, come on, get over it. And Lou wouldn't forgive him. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Uh, as you say, the big fella and all of the the different stories we hear about Babe Ruth and the legacy and uh, bigger than life in a lot of ways, Did did is there anything in the book uh, that describes or that talks about the uh, you know the the time where he's at Wrigley Field he sees the 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 sick youngster I think early in the morning and he promises he's going to hit a home run and he winds up pointing out to center field and sure enough he hits the home run well that's completely false that was Uh made up by Hollywood for the Babe Ruth movie which was as bad a, a movie as has ever been made. Right. Uh, is this the was, Bendix was, one, the William Bendix one? Yeah, the yeah. William yeah. Bendix yeah. one. And it, that was, it was just Awful. an embarrassment. Yeah. It remains an embarrassment. And they, Hollywood does what, Hollywood did what Hollywood does, is it just extrapolated from um, stuff that was described in, in the autobiography that was published that year, that summer. It was written by Bob Considine with a, big lot of help from Fred Lieb because Considine didn't really know Ruth and Ruth was so sick at that point that he couldn't really contribute much. You're talking about the famous story of Johnny Sylvester, the New Jersey boy who was allegedly in the hospital um, and his life in danger when his father reached out to Ruth, then playing in the 26 uh, World Series in uh, St. Louis uh, thinking that a uh, that a signed autograph uh, ball would somehow save his son's life. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's that <laughs> that's, um, needs to be corrected, and that is everything, because Johnny Sylvester was not in the hospital. Johnny Sylvester was mm-hmm. in his bed at home in New Jersey when Ruth and Christy Walsh, who mastered this whole uh, thing, um, stopped by his house and did meet him. Um, and Ruth did send him uh, not just one but two baseballs by airmail mm. in 1926. But Johnny's looking quite fine in the pictures that appeared on the front of the New York Daily News, and it was great headlines: "Doctor Ruth arrives," you know. <laughs> and it, but he was never in Chicago, and um, uh, that story was completely made up. Got one last question for you, and I really appreciate the time. want to remind everybody that uh, Jane Levy will be at the Babe Ruth Museum and Birthplace next Saturday, the 15th, from 3 to 5, a little bit of a talk, then a signing for the books that you buy there. Great gift this uh, holiday season. My last question is, if this book had its genesis in 1995, what were you thinking about? about 23 years ago uh, this time. I mean, in other words, what are you thinking about for the next book for Jane Levy? I'm thinking about going to Bali for a year and sitting on a beach. (laughs) I I really don't know. I mean, I'll give you a serious answer. I don't know. Believe me, my agent is asking. Um, I don't think that there's another biography um, that, uh, you know, these guys are a troika, you know, Um, 
where do you go? I mean, after after I said after Sandy Koufax, where do you go? Okay, Mickey Mantle, that makes sense. Where do you go after Mantle? Okay, Babe Ruth. But you know, that's the point about Ruth. There's nowhere to go after there's, Babe Ruth. There's nowhere he in is, baseball to go. What about like somebody like Muhammad Ali, or is baseball your thing, Jane? Um, I would be very happy to write about some something or some you know some subject other than baseball and i think i probably can ali was just done by my very good friend john eig and that too would be a great holiday book because it's terrific um i I don't know i you know uh, i i maybe a season you know Mm -hmm. something like that the way david halberstam used to do them um but i think i need some distance from Ah. the babe who is I like to say that I've spent more nights alone with Babe Ruth than any woman since either of his wives and probably more consecutively than either of them ever did. Well, you know, sitting on a beach in, you know, in let's, fa- let's face it, that's a good way to work things out. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Jane, many thanks for being on with us again. The TV show tomorrow morning, 1030 on Channel 2. Uh, inside press box, Jane will be at the Babe Ruth Museum birthplace, and we'll see if we can't find her another gig to, uh, to come and sell some books yeah. in Baltimore very shortly. Jane, thanks a million for your time. Thank you, Stan. Because you know what? Yeah, it is very much a Baltimore book. Yes, it is a great and, gift uh, in Baltimore. You know for the people. stuff that I was able to find about his childhood in Baltimore, which is not in any other of the previous biographies. Um, is the stuff I'm most proud of, actually. Thank you very much, Jane. We'll talk to you soon. Okay.